Hello and welcome to the Xenothesis podcast. Uh, this episode, episode 38, we are covering chapters 14 and 15 from part 2 Phoenix of book 2 Adulthood Rites of Octavia Butler's Xenogenesis trilogy. My name is Richard Acton and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host. Hi everyone, Michael Glinka. How are you doing, Richard? Yeah, pretty good, pretty good. Uh, there's some uh, some interesting stuff in this chapter, I think. Uh, yeah, these yeah. Chapters. The first chapter is a bit short, but the next one gives us a bit more... Um, there's some interesting biology uh, we've learned about the constructs and their abilities. Mm-hmm. But I guess maybe let's get to it, um, because we'll start talking about that and then be like, oh, actually, we should talk about it a bit later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's uh, stick to the uh, approximate structure. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so your, your predictions. Yeah, I guess uh, I'll start with chapter 14 predictions. So I thought that the, the chapter will talk a bit more about the life of the three constructs together, Akin and the two girls. Um, mm-hmm. At least some exp- of their experience in the life of the in the village of Fe- village Phoenix. But no, uh, it doesn't happen. We're completely off track to a journey somewhere in the mountains. Yeah. We don't know where. And we do get a bit more of the the construct, but um, not so much in Phoenix. You know, Absolutely, being yeah. Taken off to the, uh, I think it was wherever it is that the salvage site is in the mountains. I think yeah. that's where they're moving them off to, which I suppose suggests the uh, uh, Phoenix people might have some indication that the Owen Carly are looking for them. Potentially, potentially, and also mm. we are introduced to a new psychopath. Uh, in this chapter I mean I love it like it's each time you you just sense like the moment they introduce the named characters uh, I don't know like Octavia Butler does this in a way that like you're getting introduced character in the name and then within the first I don't know five minutes of the chapter when you read it it's just like you either know they're gonna be like a either neutral character an okay character or a complete psychopath there's no in between like those those levels (laughs) Uh, yeah, I mean, she does do quite uh, rapid characterization. Mm. <laughs> uh, Absolutely. So, yeah, uh, quite a lot of, um, uh, you know, you get a lot of relatively small indications, but they paint quite a clear picture. Yes, yes. <laughs> of like, the person. You don't need much mm. to, to know that something's going to be wrong with this person. Um, <laughs> but I guess let's get to the chapter summary. Okay. <laughs> so the chapter starts with all the three kids being taken somewhere in the mountains the next day um, we know they're traveling through some um, forests um, but at, the po- at that point we don't know where they're heading um, Gabe carried Akin on top of a bundle of supplies with Tate walking behind with even more supplies in her backpack Amma was carried by Macy um, Wilton, but we are not told any anything about Schacht at the moment. We just know there mm. she's definitely there. Um, we're told a bit more about the biology of the girls, their throat tentacles, um, and the fact that Schacht cannot actually see through her eyes, but through the ten- but she can see through her tentacles of her head. So that's a bit surprising mm. because we know that like before we were told about the, their noses that like you know if they have the breathing orifice surrounded by the tentacles like then most likely their nose is not functional but their eyes mm. so far have been usually used right am I correct yeah yeah I, I think uh, very much so yeah and it, it doesn't make a sort of a great deal of physical sense to have like eyes. I mean, like the, the absence of eyes in general in the Oankali, I, I don't know to what, de- I forget to what degree the, 
adult Owen Carly mostly don't have like you know conventional ball type eyes or if it's all kind of distributed in their tentacles mm-hmm. but like it, it doesn't make a great deal of physical sense to not have eyeballs that have you know a, a lens and the ability to you know move around and, and and track stuff because you just you cannot construct a focused image of the uh, of stuff that you're looking at from like small pit eyes Mm-hmm. or small make even small like lensed eyes to some degree like insects there's a kind of a there's a there's it limits to how much you can do with such a small lensing space right so yep. the like there's very good reasons why eyes are the way they are yeah from like just from the, the physics of light perspective uh, and, and you see that in in the evolutionary history of the evolution of eyes right it, it's it's the uh, it's a convergent feature right? so multiple independent lineages have come to a very similar uh, structure for the eye completely separately from one another although saying that like from an engineer perspective it's a bad design because the sensitive um sensitive uh, cells that you know that the that detect light are behind mm. the nervous system where the, the nerves are you know they're picking the signals from so it's it should be all the way around but um but it still works though mm. well actually the um octopus i think uh, and other cephalopods as well who, who independently evolve the eye mm-hmm. don't have that problem oh, okay. so they don't have the um uh, the uh, the blind spot that we have where we have like the nerve going through yep. the middle of the retina um so uh, uh yeah, that's uh, uh, another one of those interesting things about uh, cephalopod vision because um, they have very similar eyes to us mm-hmm. in um, like structure. I mean, yep. They have you know a, a lens and and you know a photoreceptive bit at the back and so on. Um, but yeah, like the, the history of the evolution of eyes always it kind of follows a similar pattern, right? You have a light sensitive spot, mm-hmm. and then it you can kind of start to pull that down into a, a pit so you get uh, different shading so you can like perceive the direction so you know if you if you uh, recess the light sensitive dot a little bit then the angle of incidence of the light into the pit uh, it tells you something about you know where that light's coming from and so mm-hmm. on so it starts to give you positional information and then you can recess it further and move to like a pinhole eye um, which kind of gives you some lensing effects and, and, and uh, limited focusing ability, but then you can get a proper lens where you actually focus the the image onto the light sensitive bit at the back, uh, and, and you can see like all of these different stages of eye development in various extant organisms, um, and you know that same kind of pattern has repeated itself several times. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah, actually, I was going to say that in fact um, this is interesting because we know that, for example, the in the book, it doesn't say that there, uh, there is no fu- uh, non-functional eyes. But, well, so far. Um, but, mm. like, because, for example, Akin, when we first were interested in Akin, um, Lilith told him to follow what people were saying because he can actually see with the light patches, uh, with mm. the sensitive cells on his skin, so he didn't have to look at people around um, because he could see them anyway. But... Um, yeah, it's. I think it's. It's the first time when we actually see a character with no mm-hmm. functional eyes, as you described them. Yeah, and we um, like we have kind of an. Uh, well, we don't know whether or not we have a true analogy to that in octopuses, mm-hmm. um, because octopuses they have you know a conventional eye, but they also have this kind of uh, like the pigments that are present in their um, eyes are also present in their their tentacles. Yes. Um, 
and they are the, people have demonstrated they are in fact light sensitive in those tentacles. Yes. So they have the ability to perceive light levels in a distributed fashion uh, in a, across the surface of their body and their skin, which they use for their kind of adaptive camouflage stuff. Like uh, if you've not um, seen audience uh, like footage of octopuses doing adaptive camouflage uh, and also cuttlefish, like look it up. It's amazing. It's, it's like mind-blowingly effective camouflage. No, and it's, incredibly. It's, it's really amazing because they can really blend within seconds um, to the, with the environment. And there are actually, in fact, some of videos that look into the individual sort of cells um, mm. on a Petri dish um, on uh, in magnification so you can see the actual response to the, uh, of the cells to different environments. And it's pretty amazing how quickly they adapt to like the, the pigmentation. Mm. They have like um, several layers. So I've, I've just been reading this book, um, Other Minds. I've not quite finished it yet, um, which talks a, a lot about kind of octopus um, nervous system and how they perceive things and so mm-hmm. on. But one of the things that they talk about is the, like, the structure of, of the skin for this adaptive camouflage thing that they do. They have kind of an outer protective layer. And then they have a layer of, um, I think they're called uh, chromatophores, uh, uh-huh. where they, can, yes. they have se- several pigments um, in kind of little muscular sacs and that they can control um, so they can you know uh, alter the the color of, of their outer skin by changing you know what proportion of these the same way you would with like a red green blue pixel but they don't have red green and blue I think they have um, it's like yellow brown and, and I forget the third color uh, but uh, they wouldn't have enough to make a, the full gamut of, of colors that colors that they can make um, with the those pigments mm-hmm. so they have another layer beneath the chromatophores which is comprised of iridophores so it's um, kind of uh, semi-reflective layered iridescent structures mm-hmm. where they can take in light from the environment and reflect it back uh, but with a, an altered wavelength right so the you know, the light that's coming in is being, you know, changed in these uh, iridescent things and then projected back out. Uh, so they can make the like green colors and stuff with this. Isn't it? Did we have a conversation about the fact that before about that the blue color doesn't exist in nature? Did we talk about this, or did I just watch a doc uh, a documentary about this and um, a video and like I, maybe just in my mind I thought we discussed this. I don't recall explicitly. I may have also forgotten. <laughs> so, in fact, that this is very similar. So, there's only one in butterflies. Like, so we don't really have mm-hmm. a blue color as such in nature. There's only few a few examples of blue color in in in, in environment in our na- in nature. And for example, butterflies. Um, there's only one species of butterfly that actually has blue color. Everything else hmm. is actually um, a fake blue. That is, they have special sort of arrangement of um, cells on their, uh, on their wings so that they reflect the light in such a way that they actually, hmm. um, it's not that they filter the blue light, they actually reflect the light so that it looks like blue. Mm-hmm. So it's a bit of uh, refracted slightly. Yes, to, to exactly. The, so uh, mm-hmm. it's like the iridescent li- uh, layer you're talking about in octopuses. Uh, like, um, mm. It's very similar in this way. That, but there's only one species of butterfly that actually has blue pigment in them. Um, everyone, so that- every other butterfly is just reflecting the light in a way that looks blue. But in fact, it's like it's like when you look at certain things and you see mm. like it's it's shining blue, right? But if you, order, if you look at them from a different angle, it loses that color. 
Yeah, that kind of oil spill iridescence thing where you're you're actually just seeing the refracted light, not mm. so much the yeah. Um, but, uh, is that is that just an animal thing? Because like there are plenty of blue flowers. I think in uh, I think I can I can be wrong in here because I don't really remember well. But I think there are some blue there are blue pigments in nature in general but i think most of them are fake like they're just a reflection of um of like this particular physical property like uh, property of this of the surface of those materials mm-hmm. um but in general i think there's only few things that really produce blue color as is okay actually i think you know, I may come back with this later because I think it's from a book that I saw, and then I looked into more videos about this. But um, but I'll uh, mm-hmm. in the references I'll put in if I remember correctly. I will check my sources on this. Yes, uh, but returning briefly to the octopus skin, mm-hmm. so you've got your chromatophores, your iridophores, and then there's a a, a third layer which is um uh, just sort of more generically reflective. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it can do kind of white lights and so on. So yeah, that's that's the structure that that lets them produce all these different colors, and it's almost like they have kind of a reflective backlight behind their screen, right? They have these reflective layers, so they can take the light in and shine it back out through mm-hmm. the uh, through the pigments and so on. But it's just this uh, spectacular um, like uh, display that they can create. Um, plus, they also have like a, a very kind of distributed nervous system, right? So a lot of the stuff that goes on in their their limbs that do this kind of adaptive camouflage stuff is is somewhat decentralized, and like the the processing related to it seems to be happening actually on the limb. Mm-hmm. In fact, you can take chunks of octopus skin, um, and they will still do the adaptive camouflage thing like independently of the the central octopus, as it were. <laughs> Can I ask you a question back on those layers of the um, uh, of the different mm-hmm. pigment layers? Um, do you know which layers evolved first? Like, which were like obviously this is a a hmm. collection of evolutionary traits. Mm-hmm. But I was just wondering, like, what if there's any examples in nature that start with particular layer and then another one gets added to it? Over time, as a like as a um, positive trait that helps survival of the an- of the of the animal. Mm, that's a good question. I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I'm not uh, particularly deep into the uh, the evolutionary <laughs> history of cephalopods, but yeah, that would be an interesting question uh, to see like how that. Because uh... it feels like in you know it has to, something has to be the beginning, and then something has to give a like extra advantage over um, just a single layer of let's say just the color pigments to to mm. provide um, a better camouflage, right? So I'm just curious whether there's examples in nature that like the more primitive versions of yeah, cephalopods I I, I that would know. have, like, for example, only two layers or only one layer. Something interesting. Mm. We'll look into it. Maybe I'm not that. sure. I mean, is it, it, it could well be that there aren't many extant examples left because they were all outcompeted by the better ones that, That's... Subs- that, that, refused, that followed them. And then it would be tricky to follow up in the fossil record because they don't have very many like hard parts to become yeah. fossilized. So it, it, it may not be uh, straightforward to, to figure that one out, but maybe. But then again, like deep sea creatures yeah. could have uh, disadvantage or like could could show this um examples where like the light doesn't reach as far, so maybe there's a limited number of layers per like camouflage layers, and also mm-hmm. um, I guess in some like pockets of Earth where like there we haven't reached yet, 
there's you know trapped animals for like uh, recently was like found a cave that's animals being trapped for like thousands of years and basically completely evolved in different directions having no eyes whatsoever and like feeding once every 10 years or something ridiculous like that um mm. so it, there might be some examples out there i'll have a look after the oh, after yeah, the yeah. recording see if i can find some examples and put them in the um, references mm. But yeah, so it's, it's an interesting mix of the fact that they have this distributed cognition in the, uh, like, adaptive camouflage in their limbs, but they do also, I mean, it's not known yet whether or not they kind of uh, have the uh, perceptual input from, uh, that's used to do this adaptive camouflage stuff in their, their tentacles, whether or not that information is, like, conveyed to their, um, their brain. They have kind of a small central nervous system um, because they have, you know, sort of so much of it spread throughout their, their bodies but the it seems that they can uh, it seems it at least goes the other way right they can exert some kind of volitional control over their their camouflage um action mm-hmm. um so for example things like uh, a cuttlefish right um there's this in this this book i was reading there's this good account of uh, the effectiveness of cuttlefish camouflage where this the the guy who wrote the book was following a cuttlefish around and it you know it spotted him and then went and hid and pretended to be a rock mm-hmm. um but he like he lost it briefly while it was uh, you know while he was trying to follow it um and then you know he, he saw this okay there's this thing with all these rocks and i bet the cuttlefish is here pretending to be a rock and he looked right at it and thought no nah, that's just a rock um and then you know went looking somewhere else wow. and eventually came back and and looked more closely like, okay yeah that that is the cuttlefish it just looks like a rock <laughs> despite the fact he you know he'd looked at it before and thought that's just a rock. It eventually came back and looked, managed to find it again. I was like, yeah, okay, that is actually the cuttlefish. And then, um, it like, uh, you know, it, it kind of gave up, like, cause it, it noticed it was looking at him and mm-hmm. that he was looking at it. So it just like turned off the camouflage and was like, okay, you got me. <laughs> um, Waste of energy is a point of hide anymore, I guess. Yeah. Um, and maybe because and he wasn't a, like, uh, um, it doesn't look like he was a predator, so maybe just like okay, it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, and they're all uh, the, a lot of the um, the uh, octopus and cuttlefish are quite you know curious about about humans if if they show up. I mean, some of them will just ignore you, um, but others, uh, you know, some will run away and some will be like, uh, you know, they'll, they'll you know come up and probe you with a tentacle, see mm-hmm. if you're you know interesting. Um, but uh, and there's a kind of a surprising amount of behavioral diversity in the um, in the octopus. Uh, so um, there's some really fun accounts of people trying to keep them in camp, uh, in in tanks, in in labs to do like uh, experiments on them because uh-huh. you know people they, they seem very intelligent um, and so on. So you know like the early behaviorists were kind of interested in you know doing the same like can we t- do reinforcement learning, get them to you know pull a lever to get a treat kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and they managed to do this with several octopus, but there, there were also um, there are numerous reports from various people who've worked with octopus of, of there being like recalcitrant personalities among the <laughs> octopuses. So <laughs> there was one I think it was called um, Charles by the experimenters who um, instead of pulling the well, I mean he he figured out that he could pull the lever to get a treat, but it was you know the the, the stuff that you normally give octopus in in captivity is not like necessarily their optimal food they like kind of catching live stuff and eating it they're not all that you know enamored with just some like shrimp or, or um tuna or something yep. um so it was a bit you know like underwhelmed by the rewards he was getting from pulling the lever so he just pulled it off the wall <laughs> um and then uh, he just like yanked it off of the tank <laughs> 
broke the uh, experimental apparatus. Wasn't there one? And, uh, sorry, like wasn't there one uh, mm-hmm. that like climb every so often? Scientists would come in because there were like two tanks, and there was one tank mm-hmm. with the octopus, another one with like I don't know mussels or something. Yep. They are well known for climbing out of their tanks, climbing into neighboring tanks, eating stuff from the neighboring tanks, and climbing back into their tanks. <laughs> and they, they seem to be very much aware of the fact that you can see them um, and that they're being watched. So, like, if you have an octopus in a bucket um, and you look at it, you know, it's like it, it looks, you know, perfectly content in the bucket, but you look away and then it's like you look back and it's walking away from you. <laughs> on the floor right they're they're definitely uh like they're they're super aware of the fact that people are are watching them uh they they seem very much uh, to be able to to do that because they they definitely do this thing where you know they will do stuff when you're not looking (laughs) because they know you're not looking um but yeah i mean the, the other thing this this octopus charles did was um there was a light over his tank which he, he didn't like because you know they, they generally don't yeah. like bright yeah. lights. So he just sprayed water at it until it shorted, and they had to keep replacing the bulb. <laughs> <laughs> and the, he also did this to experimenters, right? So he'd hang around with his eyes sticking out the top of the water, and whenever someone walked past, he'd just squirt water at them. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> <What> an asshole. <laughs> yeah. So you just got this, you know, asshole octopus who refuses to take part in the experiments. <laughs> then you're like, in this paper we're producing uh, these results, we have no significant data because our test subject was an asshole. That would be yeah, such a much. good paper, oh my <laughs> god. It's, it's really funny to read, because there's a few quotes in this book from the paper where they're describing trying to work with this octopus. And the... the um, you know, it's like the kind of the typical like dry scientific description of this octopus just being a dick to the experiments. <laughs> it's just, like, yeah, it's it's really quite hilarious. Um, and there's accounts of them doing stuff like, um, you know, because they're fairly unimpressed with the food that they normally get mm-hmm. in in captivity. Uh, there was um, this one experimenter who, uh, you know, she was like going down the line of octopus tanks, giving them a, a chunk of fish or whatever, and you know, she she went back to the one at the beginning, and it like locked eyes with her. And like very deliberately, whilst making eye contact, just like through the, the the piece of tuna that it was holding, because it like it it kept it in a tentacle and like was like yeah see this, and then just like put it in the outflow pipe to throw it away. <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's like the um uh, the experiment with the capuchin monkeys where they uh, where they give them the um the cucumber and the grape. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, have you seen that one? It's a great. There's a YouTube video. Look up that in in if you want to see this. Uh, I think we probably put, mentioned it before on the podcast where. Like uh, grapes are, are much preferable to to capuchins than than cucumber. So if you put two capuchins in a cage next to one another, um, and you get them to give you something as a like they're trained to hand you a rock to get a reward. Mm-hmm. Um, if you give if you pay one of them with cucumber, and, and you pay the other one with grapes, then the one you give cucumber like throws the cucumber at you and is like, "I want grapes. This is not fair. How come he's getting uh, he's getting uh, grapes and I'm getting cucumber? What's this?" It's, it's, it, they definitely seem to have this kind of uh, personalities uh, in a way. That yeah, some sort of evolution have, of personalities. Yeah, I mean, just from like interacting with them, people definitely get the impression that they, you know, there's there's uh, some kind of uh, like awareness there. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely, it's it's fantastic. I, I love listening to stories like that when you, you when you think 
uh, one thing that's, you know, like animals and dumb and everything. But, like, when you actually get to uh, observe, like, you know, any domestic animal, any animal like that, and you actually observe them, every one of them can have different type of personality. It's just fantastic. Especially when you have mm-hmm. an octopus that just throws the food while you're looking directly in your eyes. <laughs> it's just... I, I just, it's I've been often, like, the thing is, often animal studies with animals, especially rats, um, uh, behavioral studies have this, like, problems because rats are very sentient animals and are very aware of what they, you know, what they do and they're, envi- they're aware of their environments and who, like, uh, who they are. So often, like, you get those papers that they had to exclude certain animals from the studies because they're just not following what they were like trying to do like just were completely refusing doing stuff or just doing the opposite just to piss you off and just i just love it it's just so good (laughs) and it's kind of a thing that i think we don't um, necessarily accommodate well in animal studies like individual level uh variation absolutely i mean anyone who's ever owned a pet knows they have distinct personality Uh, and it it makes sense that you would have a certain amount of variation in behavioral repertoire in any animal that has a fairly complex behavioral repertoire but uh yeah we we, we tend to flatten that a little bit in in experimental work i think it's because (laughs) also i mean that's the reason why we moved away from working on animals as such because it just didn't make sense after some time when people who actually realized oh you know animals aren't just dumb they actually have can have personalities mm. and they actually you know can solve things and perfect examples are like i think with crows when like studying on crows behavior and the be able mm. to um solve riddles and stuff like that but like in general, that's why I think nowadays there's this massive jump uh, what people who work with animals ha- have to experience. So you usually start with mouse, like mouse studies where you, you know, obviously can breed mouse very quickly and you can get certain gene mutations. And usually mouse don't, mice don't mm. have that much personalities because they're too, too small, their brains aren't that developed. But then mm. you move to rats some, in, some st- in some studies and those can the behavioral changes can affect the study but then you don't really have like for example, at least in uk you don't have really have m- many animal like cat or dog studies you usually go to bigger animals and those studies usually mm. are not really behavioral studies but more of like bones and joint studies and stuff like or mm-hmm. like sort of to mimic um more human um well, let's say cure conditions. Like physiology. Yes, yeah, physiology. Yeah. That's yeah. that's that's a good word to use here. Um, but in overall, like you don't get that many studies. Usually, you just jump straight to human um, trials, basically. So hmm. it, there's a bit of a gap in there. But I think you, you can sort of see that, like, it's I would say less ideal when you do an experiment and the animal just refuses to participate because fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, but yeah, if we kind of got a little bit sidetracked. Yes, there. quite a the, lot. The, you know, half, a, the, half an hour the, in the, of the recording, and we haven't even passed the first sentence <laughs> of the. <laughs> oh dear. Okay. Right. Yeah. So the 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 point was that uh, octopus may or may not be able to see the like the light coming into their tentacles. Uh, so it, it may or may not be analogous to to the Oankali, but it seems reason at least somewhat possible uh, that they can in fact uh, get some like. Um, sort of distributed impression of the incident light on their their tentacles, um, and and that that's something that's accessible to them centrally, as it were, in, in their uh, their central brain. 
Um, but yeah. But yeah. Um, Let's get back to the chapter. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, we finish with the fact that uh, Shka cannot actually see through her eyes, but she can see through her tentacles on her head. We've discussed this. Let's move on. <laughs> so, yes. Akin realized that they are being taken somewhere, but only stopping once at noon. But it seemed like the humans were fearing that they might be in pursuit. Um, the fact that the guns taken from Akin's captors, original captors, were also taken by the men in the group indicated that something was happening and something was on, uh, going on. At the night, uh, at night, the humans erected tents for the, you know, for sleep. Um, Akin was sleeping mm. with Abira, an Israeli woman who had three kids before war. Um, in the book, she was described by quite tough, but when she was dealing with uh, Akin, she was like very gentle. So, mother mm-hmm. instincts hitting, uh, kicking in. Um, Ama and Skacht slept together because no human wanted to sleep with them because of their tentacles. As everyone was falling asleep, Akin overheard Nessie. Uh, did we say Neki? Nessie? Nika? What? Um, uh- I, th- I think it was... Uh, well, I went with Neki, but Neki, I, okay. I, I don't know Sorry. what the actual correct... Yeah. Uh, Neki Roybal, uh, as I call her, the local psychopath, and her husband, Stancio, uh, talking about removal of tentacles of the girls. Um, Akin avoided them because he wanted to avoid Neki, because, uh, but Neki had a way of saying th- a thing and saying a thing over and over until other people began to say it and believe it. Um, quote from the book. While Neki was tra- um, trying to persuade her husband that the girls wouldn't remember anything when they grew up after they removed the tentacles, forgetting the fact that everyone knows that all the constructs re- remember everything, understandably her husband tells her that she's a psychopath. And this is a quote of the book. How many times, Neki, the man said finally, how many times would you torture children? Would you torture them if they had come from your body? Will you torture them now because they did not? Um, oof, like, uh, generally, yeah. just mm. like, the fact that, um, I mean, th- I get that some things, like, um, happen, like, when, you know, some societies, in nowadays even, do certain things, like, um, uh, what's the word, um, removing the, like, uh, it's the religious, uh, um, removal of, like, for example, forced Oh, circumcision? Circumcision, for example, because when they're, they're, right, they're yeah. you know, they're kids, um, because, you know, mm. the trauma, they will not remember it, but it's still fucking barbaric. And, like, there's this lady who wants to remove their tentacles, even though, like, oh, and they will not remember it, even though clearly, like, mm. everybody knows the, like, constructs, like, and the Onkali can remember everything because they have this eidetic memory. It's just, like, yep. it just blows my mind how, how, I mean, they're desperate, I understand, but this is borderline psychopath. Not borderline, there is psychopath. Well, I mean, like the the like it, it's not necessarily specific. Like the you know the psychopathic personality has very like specific diagnostic criteria, right? This is not like entirely. Cons- I mean, it's not precisely consistent with that. Well, right? but to, still, to be, to be if you want to be pedantic about it, but realistically, uh, yes. If anybody was like, "Oh, we're just gonna cut them," come and on, keep Michael, cutting you know me. them. I'm always pedantic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course I know, I know. Um, but like, if you would want to go cut the tentacles over and over again to cause the pain, the child, so that just she just looks the way you want her to look, it's, that's just yeah, yeah. This is uh, 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 I think that it reminded me quite a lot of the. Um, uh, so th- there was kind of a, a habit in, um, or a, 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 a way of doing medical treatment, particularly for intersex individuals, mm-hmm. um, which was kind of conforming um, 
conforming surgery to make their genitalia resemble uh, like either a male or female right. um, uh, body type, because you know this kind of this this concept that the gender identity would like match um, the the physical body, mm-hmm. um, which is. Uh, you know, somewhat uh, debunked as a theory, right? If you, if you take someone's body and make it look a particular way, it won't necessarily, like, their, their gender identity won't necessarily come to match that. Um, but, you know, and this was, was done quite a lot um, to kind of try and, uh, like, the emphasis was on that, on, on making the uh, the body conform to the, like, societally expected version of a particular uh gender type or a particular sex mm-hmm. right physically um but the um v- v- like insufficient attention was paid to like the risks of these surgical procedures and the actual like functionality of the organs yeah right so you know if, if you go in there and, and do uh, like a, 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 you know, a reduction in size of an, an oversized clitoris or whatever then you can seriously impact like the the functional uh, aspect of that uh, with respect to like nervous perception yeah. and so on, uh, like okay, you've made it look more like female typical, but have you actually compromised its function? Uh, so, and, and and this it feels like a very kind of analogous situation here, right? You th- they want them to conform and look like what you would expect a human to look like, but they have very little interest in like the risks of what the surgery surgical procedure might be because you know the, there's no anesthetic here, uh, and that you can easily get infections. And you know, analogously, in the like intersex surgery situation, where okay, there's anesthetic, but like there's no functionality. Operative risk of it. is not like yeah. There's always risk when you're doing an operation, and infections, uh, post-op infections, and, and nerve damage, and all that stuff. That's the thing. Mm. Right? So, it, it, yeah, it's a yeah. So I, I'd recently read Alice Drager's book, um, uh, Galileo's Middle Finger, which was why this uh, analogy hit me. Um, we mentioned uh, that, it last uh, time, didn't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That book came up in the past, uh, but yeah, I think it's a, an, an interesting parallel. Uh, but yeah, this, uh, uh, it, it, yeah, I think that's that's why they're trying to do it, right? They want to to make these uh, girls who have these weird tentacles look human, so they can be accepted in in human society the way we want to make. Yeah. we previously had wanted to make like intersex people look normal, so they could be accepted by society. But like, no, this is not giving consideration to the biological function and to the, the possibility of just like accepting a little bit of difference. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> no, it's just it's. I, it's basically borderline torture at this point, what, what this woman is thinking. And the fact that she's so determined to do it is, for me, is just the desperation has grew to something even more sinister. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I don't think it's even borderline. This is yeah. like you know, cutting off the tentacles is straight up torture. Yeah. <laughs> now, so returning briefly to that octopus thing we discussed earlier. Go on. There's a, there's a, I, don't, I can't remember if I mentioned my octopus teacher. Nope. Um, the yeah, I think I just talked about the book. Um, but there's this great documentary film called My Oc- Octopus Teacher about a guy who kind of makes friends with an octopus. Um, and there's there's a, a section where one of the octopus loses a tentacle in this. Um, uh, it's like bitten off by something. Um, and like the octopus is clearly quite affected by this, mm-hmm. right? You know, it, you know, it, it 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 looks physically hurt, and it goes off and like you know, kind of huddles up in its den and kind of, you know, nurses its injury for a bit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, they, they do actually grow back their tentacles. But, yeah, I mean, they're, 
Another analogy to some other media struck me there with you know, this like image of, of uh, the octopus losing its tentacle mm-hmm. and the uh, you know cutting the, the tentacle off these uh, off these girls. It's like you know, these things are clearly like highly enervated, like perceptual, absolutely, uh, and and like tactile. It's, it's like you know some of the most sensitive parts of the body. So like cutting them off is just it's like gouging your eye basically. Oh. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, we introduced a new favorite character of mine. So, yeah, I'm looking I'm going I'm looking forward to her um doing something really stupid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so uh, yeah, not not anticipating great things no. from 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 Neki, yeah. Uh, it, on the characterization of her, this is interesting. Uh, they talk about how how she just keeps talking about it. Like she'll just persist. Like she's constantly like trying to she she wants to just fixate on an idea. She won't give up, which I think is an interesting bit of characterization. Uh, it's it's quite effective. It's like, yeah, like I uh, mean, if to say like the more the more she repeats it, everybody starts like, oh, maybe the tentacles don't look good, like blah blah, and stuff. All of that like suddenly just becomes a common. It feels like an archetype of the sort of person that I, I, I I've encountered, right? Someone who just won't, won't let go of the idea and keeps saying it until everyone else <laughs> falls falls into line. Yeah. yeah. Um. How how do you say it? who said it that um, when you repeat a lie enough times it becomes the truth? Like it's a very similar concept here. It's just you keep repeating mm-hmm. it until it becomes the common knowledge. I would say or mm. common opinion in this case. Sorry, but yeah, the chapter ends with Neki crying a bit before sleep and Akin finally drifting off to the wonderland of dreams, and that's where the chapter ends. So it was a short uh, short chapters, but our discussion wasn't so. You're welcome, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> mm, okay then, yeah. So it's a, just uh, yeah, not not a huge amount happening there. Just we get you know some in- introduction to some new characters, set up some some potential drama with the with with Neki's interest in the the girl's tentacles, yep. and yeah, the the context of the fact that they're moving to the. South um, side, this kind of safe place, and, yeah. and they're going there armed. Yeah. So that's it. They must be aware that something must might might be happening. We don't know how much how much time. Well, wait. We do know it because it was the next day. Um, they they went mm. to salvage site. So maybe they realized that having three kids constructs is a mass significantly increased risk of the Ankali trying to take them off, uh, take them away. So, mm-hmm. but yeah. Um, I guess let's go to my chapter fifteen prediction. Yeah, sure. So the next day, Neki is going to try to convince more people. Uh, she's not going to give up uh, of the idea to cutting the girl's tentacles. And I think uh, I thought that maybe Akin will try to do something to prevent that. I suspecting. To be fair, I, I wasn't certain what what may happen because um, you know, time with Octavia Butler's uh, books predicting what's going to happen next is near impossible but if they're on the journey i thought maybe um they will f- sort of reach the uh, reach the salvage site and on mm-hmm. the salvage site akin like uh will try to um talk to tate because most likely tate mm-hmm. he, i think he trusts her that you know talk about like like she's trying to do this it's stupid and it's gonna cause massive pain and also may kill her mm-hmm. something along those lines you know mm. Wasn't certain about this. It, okay. You know, it, it, time can pass quickly or can be very slow before an idea of one uh, monster um, 
comes to fruition. So who knows? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah so I, th- I think you got the um, the part about um, Akin taking, speaking to Tate about this, uh, correct? But yeah, we didn't get to the salvage site. No, yet, not yet. Think. Not yet. Yeah. Um, but yeah, let's uh, let's start the chapter five, I guess. Sure, sure. So the days went by as the group were climbing through the forest and um, the hills, um, the forest, the hills. It was getting cooler, so the humans were trying to dress up the kids, but Akin and the girls were fighting them off to stop that. Their bodies could adjust quickly to temperature changes, and also it was um, uncomfortable, for them, uncomfortable for them. We know that Akin was really uncomfortable wearing clothes because it was covering his sensitive parts, and it was uh, he didn't like it, so... Mm. Just imagine, like, the kids, like, no, leave me alone. Just trying to just, come on, put this hoodie on. Um, on the second... No, I mean, mm-hmm. well, human kids do that sometimes. All the time. <laughs> All the time. Yeah. But, yeah. On the second night of the journey, Akin began sleeping with the girls. They needed to learn English quickly, and he was trying to protect them. Neki, the psychopath, was doing what Akin predicted. <laughs> talking to people over and over about removing tentacles of the girls' heads. And even though people were laughing behind her back, some started to say the same. Um, Akin talked to the girls about trying to stop the humans from cutting them, and Chikak asked him if there's any human who could trust, and he says, Tate, Tate could... He doesn't understand what is wrong with her, but it quote in the book, I don't re- either really, but it's the way they have to live. They want kids, so they buy us, but we still aren't their kids. They want to have kids. Sometimes they hate us because they can't, and sometimes they hate us because we're part of the Onkali, and the Onkali are the ones who won't let them have kids. Mm, yeah. So yeah, they have a lot of difficulty understanding the way that humans think. Yes. Yes. <laughs> they treat them as their kids, but at the same time they're not because there's something alien in them, basically. Mm-hmm. But yeah, when one of the girls uh, points out that they could have dozen could have dozen of kids if they only joined on Kali, Akin explains to them that he thinks it's just about the fact that there won't be any more of the humans if they did that. The girls refute that they're say they're also you no know, saying that they're also part of them. But Akin says, a quote of the book, if they could perceive, they would be us, but they can't and they aren't. We're the best of what they are and the best of what on Kali are, but because of us, they won't exist anymore. One of the girls points out that the same happen, will happen to the Dinso and the Toht on Kali. But Akin says there will be always the Akjai that do not trade in case goes, something goes wrong. So the humans should also have that, uh, have that a human Akjai. Even though humans are flawed and over-specialized, despite the present conflict in the genes of, uh, despite the present of the conflict and the genes of hierarchy and intellig- with intelligence, which is a reference to the book one, that they're talking about, like, mm. you know, I think it was um, Chitaya that was talking about mm. this. But yeah, it, it, you know, that's what we've been talking about, like having the possibility for humans. Yeah, yeah. Uh, th- th- this is the uh, the interesting um, an interesting prospect, right? And, and, and it's kind of odd in some ways that this hasn't been raised before, I think. So you know, we've got the, you know, the Dinso and the Toat, like groups of the Oankali that mix with the humans. And then this 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 Akja group that goes away without doing any trade. Yeah. And it, it makes perfect sense that the uh, you know the the other trade partner, if it's actually a partner yeah. in some meaningful sense, would have the same you know option for an insurance policy, as it were, in that trade. Uh, you know the same uh, Akjai outgroup, as it were. But um, we've not heard if this was a thing in previous trade partners, right? Did other 
species with whom you and Curly trade uh, have an actually. Well, actually, Richard, because in the first book, it said that the humans are the first so developed organism, like, uh, well, societal-wise and, mm. you know, uh, um, intelligence-wise to what they've mm. traded so far. So I would assume that they've traded to what we would call equivalent of animals um, mm. that might have some intelligence developed, but not enough to be aware, to, to be creating societies as such. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a good point, actually. Yeah, we, we never really uh, delved too deeply into how many of the past trade partners were kind of uh, like, yeah, you know, full sentience, yeah. as it were, and how many were, it's were just, something else. It's just I remember vividly that in the first book it said that I think it was Chitaya who said to Lilith that, like, this is particular. The the humans are the first ones to be like this um, intelligent um, to to participate in the trade, participate in trade being quotation marks. Yeah, I think perhaps I should go back and check it. I remember them saying that they are among the most intelligent, but I can't remember, intelligent species that they've traded with before. But I, I can't remember whether or not there was any indication of like whether or not there were some like only marginally less intelligent ones but i don't know it's a yeah it's an interesting uh interesting kind of gap in our knowledge of the the mm-hmm. history of the Oankali. Mm-hmm. um but i mean it makes sense this, this whole idea and i think akin is right there mm. should be the human agile version where you know in case anything mm. goes wrong like it's it's a partner right it has to be an equivalent mm-hmm. sort of level of trade exchange, exchange yeah whereas in here we have basically full assimilation and the Onkali are keeping yeah. themselves just in case something goes wrong. It's just like, yeah, but what about the humans? Like, you're just going to wipe out the whole humanity of uh, just what next? But yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it, it seems that uh, uh, Akin is, is uh, you know, very, uh, having had this idea, he's very certain of it, right? He, he is like, oh, yeah, we should have a human Akjai. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see whether or not he can convince the other Onkali yeah. of that. It'll be interesting. I guess it's it's still a process of learning for them. Um, mm. And if we go to the back to the book in here, this is at this point mm-hmm. the girls broke the contact with Akin and remade it. And after realizing something, that Akin was left here to understand the humans, right? So since he was not being heard, and they allowed uh, they allowed him to stay with study the humans. Um, so this is idea like the girls that are that realize that like oh it's been a while since he's been here, but there's a reason why maybe he's been here because one he looks the most human, and there's more likely he's more mm. likely to learn about the humans in depth that for example Don Kali are are not capable of, and mm-hmm. that's what that's you know that's that's the reason why he's there. And it, in going back to book one when Nikanj uh, or was it Kaguya said that you will never understand us but your children will right hmm. that's the whole idea maybe you know like that the construct under, understand what don kali are and they understand what human are and maybe because of the human part they will be able fully co- be understand why humans need that separation that part mm-hmm. of the group the resistance that the Akjai, as the as um akin calls it yeah, yeah. The the sort of human Oankali hybrids serve as a, a, a bridge of understanding between the two yep. species yep. that uh, you know, helps to kind of span that gap that, that uh, exists currently. Absolutely. But yeah, but the question was, what about the girls? Um, they're in danger, but Akin is going to talk to Tate. Um, otherwise, they'll have to run away, basically. In case they can hide in the mm. river, 
the Kahan era, and although Amma uh, <clears throat> can, cannot breathe underwater, Shkak can, I can and can help her with linking with her. This made Akin think of his own sibling and the solitude he felt. And this is interesting that the fact that like they were they are capable of like um linking themselves like it's yeah uh, this one is another thing that i was kind of uh, curious about in this chapter because like so far we've seen them do this kind of um like mm, uh, nervous system yes. type link right they can you know send you know electrical impulses to one another's like nerves uh or you know, uh, some some chemical exchange uh, but the um like the exchange of oxygen is kind of a whole like other level of interconnect, yeah, right? Yeah, because the, you have to if have you're going to do that efficiently, especially if they have closed circuit, mm. uh, closed uh, circuit, circulatory system, then there has to be a way for them to manipulate it to be open and be able to connect it with the other being. Yeah, I mean, you you either have to have some really uh, efficient gas exchange process to like move the oxygen from from your blood into the other blood, which would mean like a uh, the same kind of interface you have in like in a uh, a lung where you've got like a, a, an oxygen tension gradient and lots of small capillaries mm -hmm. to move the gas from one place to another which requires a lot of surface yep. area which doesn't sound like they have or you need to like directly hook up your blood to their blood yeah it's because uh, i mean with the oxygen exchange like it's there's the reason why lungs and like i have such a thin layer of um of cells immediately uh, with capillaries behind them to, to be able to absorb the oxygen mm. because anything more than few micrometers is already too much for a proper uh, um, oxygen delivery. And in you know, fact, you can see that like if you cut your finger in a way and there's not enough like oxygen going in, like it, it gets like or internally you damage or something, like it, the tissue goes necrotic very quickly. So. That mm. There has to be some way of them being able to connect or, or potentially, Richard, mm -hmm. it could be that if one of them can breathe underwater, um, potentially they, she could ex exhale the pure oxygen that she inhaled through, let's say, gills, if so-called, and provide them directly to the um, breathing orifice through, in a way, a let's say, a kiss of life. In a way, if I would call it. Okay, yeah. So you'd have kind of like a some kind of reverse. Mm, I don't know. If, mm, like absorbing oxygen from the water in form of gills, and then being able to ex, yeah. ex exhale it in a way uh, without the exhale, exhaling of the carbon dioxide, the waste product of you know metabolism. You'd have to be able to reverse the action of the lung effectively, right? You'd have to be able to make it uh, release oxygen from the the surface of the lung and then exhale it yeah uh, I, I i don't know how that would be tricky chemically yeah. i think i mean you have to i mean you, the, the only easiest way to do it would be have separate organs like gills to absorb water and then have another set of organs that basically shut off for non-functional and then like like two pairs of lungs in a way that like one is for inhaling oxygen exhaling carbon dioxide but in the case anything you can do the reverse but that sounds very yeah. energetically wasteful <laughs> right and like the reverse operation of, of releasing oxygen is uh, i think yeah i don't hmm. i mean you'd need a process that could produce the pure oxygen when we have hemoglobin or hemoglobin absorbing the oxygen, right? There has to be a uh, a 
co- a molecule that has to take the place yeah. of it, right? So, um, hmm. in a way, I mean, if you if she can concentrate the carbon dioxide level in her lungs and then cause it to exchange, like forcefully exchange it with the oxygen and the hemoglobin molecules in in, in the blood then technically you, sh- you could be able to push it off, but it's very, I would say, it sounds very, uh, I don't know, it, it, the method of their exchange yeah, would so- be really, it'd be very difficult, I would say, in the, for their body to be able to do that, to manipulate the body to do that. Yeah, yeah. I, was just, I think the, uh, <laughs> uh, like the direct circulatory connection would almost be easier. Yeah, or I feel like to be able to manipulate cells to open the system and like, but at the same time, like, imagine, like, you, you can, I don't know. Um, but at the same time, like, you know, like, when um, Akjai was giving birth and there mm-hmm. she was able to create an orifice anywhere on her body to... Ahajas. Uh, Ahajas, yeah, right? Um, mm, she was yeah, able yeah. to give orifice to give birth to a baby, right? So potentially, mm. the Onkali are capable of doing that and basically, you know, of, with a bit of time, let's say, Maybe they can mm-hmm. hold breath longer than humans and just being be able to like create a mm-hmm. connection, some lung to lung connection. I mean, it, it, I mean, it would be useful to be able to do things like just, you know, give someone else a transfusion without needing any equipment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm. I feel like I, I, I have the suspicion that maybe um, they're capable of like, there has to be a second organ to be able to do that. Yeah, I don't know. It's It sounds complicated. To, to come up with, mm. like, just to force, force your body to have an open circuit to your blood circulatory system. But then if you cut yourself, yeah, I don't know, it's just, it sounds weird. Yeah. But I then, you could just have, like, a, you know, a valve in the same way you have, like, a heart <laughs> valve, right? <laughs> Although, you know, a bit less, like, leaky. But then again, there is a lizard that can, uh, or chameleon, that can um, shoot blood out of its eyes, right? So... Technically, oh, yeah. you yeah, could a have way, a some sort of system that um, does this thing in mm-hmm. a large enough volume that one that it doesn't kill you in the first place, but it's enough to excuse me um, to give enough oxygenated blood to the system, right? Hmm. Well, I mean, I suppose in this context, it would have to be two-way exchange, yeah. right? You just kind of loop, connect up the circulatory system in both um, parts, so you can take under oxygenated blood from the person you're trying to oxygenate mm-hmm. and, and oxygenate their blood and you know keep the overall system volume I feel, the same. I feel like the but, uh, one heart would have to be pumping just pure uh focus on pumping the oxygenated blood where the other heart focusing on pumping the deoxygenated blood. To, uh, to f- I don't think necessarily you just you just connect the you know the the um like arterial blood to the vein because you know you've already got the two loop circulatory yeah, system yeah. In, in each half, right? So you just take the you know, uh, an output from the arterial system, put it in the um, like venous system mm-hmm. on the other one, and then the other way around. In the yeah, I think you can wire the plumbing up. So it makes sense. <laughs> but still, it, it's quite an interesting system that they are capable of doing this. Mm-hmm. No, um, we've uh, we've kind of done this. Uh, it's like surgically before. Uh, people mm-hmm. have taken um, mice and rats and so on, and, and uh, opened up the circulatory system of. Um, both and like connected them. I remember um, doing that for Korean. like diabetic uh, mice experiments, for, particularly for example, where they did this to show that the insulin effect, I think it was first insulin to mm. prove that there's something in the blood that's capable of helping the diabetic mice. 
Yeah, I think that was one of the early like um, parabiosis. I think is what mm-hmm. they call it, experiments where you connect the um, the circulatory system of one animal to another. Um, but they've also used it quite a lot in like aging research. Mm-hmm. So if you take um, if you take an old mouse and you connect it to a young mouse, um, then the young mouse uh, appears to age more rapidly, and the old mouse appears t- uh, to be rejuvenated somewhat. Uh, so there are factors in the blood that are affecting the uh, you know the, the aging processes. But but yeah, I mean they are kind of a. Um, I've never actually seen one in person, but I imagine this would be a pretty freaky thing to look at, right? You could basically got it's kind of this like uh, you know mouse centipede type deal. <laughs> when you put it that way, that's just really bad. <laughs> it really isn't that way, though. Uh, it's it really isn't. At least I mm. hope it wasn't. I don't mm. think anybody does experiments like this anyway nowadays. No. Um, I think there have been parabiosis experiments relatively oh, okay. recently. Uh, yeah, but uh, I mean, they, they you know they anesthetize them when they do it, and you know they stitch them together, and, and you know they they've selected so they're not going to have like rejection mm-hmm. issues, you know, compatible biotypes and so on. But yeah, you do end up with like two mice that are just like stitched together down their side in the middle. Modern um, Doctor Frankenstein, <laughs> basically. It's pretty weird. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but um, yeah, so. Once again, in a, a an interesting little sidetrack, but uh, you know, uh, Scat needed to dream, breathe underwater or, or something like that. Let's get back to the yeah <laughs> the story. So yeah, we end up with like this, the idea of like you know, idea of linking one to another made Akin think about his own sibling and the sol- solitude he felt. Um, Akin tells them that he doesn't believe that he was left by his family. He believes that his mother would come alone if he needed to be. But the girls told him that they saw some men, a resistor man, um, and bringing a woman in the arms and neck tied with rope, saying she belonged to them. They feared that the same would happen to Liv if she tried to go by herself. But Akin tells them that although they would have to try hard to do the same to his mother, many reasons why they would have to work hard on this. But the conversation ended here <laughs> because the girls placed him in between them and before he realized that it's too late, the girls were soothing him with their own deliberate calm and putting him to sleep. Mm-hmm. I just There's a little uh, um, sort of uh, diversion into doing some, some characterization of, of Lilith and her relationship with the... Uh, with Akeen mm-hmm. here, where uh, just kind of a you know, a little bit of appreciation for Lilith's character, um, where a couple of sort of quotes from from the the book here, and you know, Akeen's kind of thinking, you know, that they're not going to deliberately have uh, have left mm-hmm. him here. Um, let's see, so I don't believe um, I don't believe they're leaving me with the humans deliberately. He said, "My parents wouldn't do that. My human mother." <clears throat> would come alone if no one would come with her and then in, in response to the uh, the kind of reaction from uh, how the resistor women were treated um, that, that Scott and, and Amma um, you know, uh, provided to him that you know they, if they were alone you know they were kind of taken as property um, and then Akin's just like no one could do that to my mother she wouldn't let them she travels alone whenever she wants to um, and you know they uh, Amma and Scott are like you know you have three Onikali parents wouldn't they let her go alone. It, like, they, they wouldn't let her go alone. If, if 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 they couldn't stop her, then they would, you know, go with her, right? And Akin's like, ah, um, <laughs> yes, but you know, very uncertain. <laughs> it's like th- th- this would involve someone stopping Lilith from doing something that she's intent on doing. That's not seem like. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, and then uh, um, Amar and Scott, uh, you know, they. They don't know Lilith is what Akeen's thinking. Is that they don't know um, how she became frightening sometimes. That everyone stayed away from her and that she vanished for a while. Every so often, um, yeah. So you know, get the impression that like 
Even the Oankali are somewhat intimidated by Lilith. By Lilith. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, I would also be intimidated by a person who you made a scapegoat of mm-hmm. to betray basically yeah, your whole yeah. race. So, yeah, I would say the la- plus you gave her super strength. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, and I, 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 I like the fact here that Akeen's just like his impression of his mother is just like uh, you know this kind of unstoppable yeah, force. <laughs> yeah. Which, uh, yeah, it's it's kind of great. <laughs> when you're on Lilith, you start to hear the boss music. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, let's go back to the to the chapter. Mm-hmm. So the next day, Akin went to speak to Tate and explain to her what uh, that whatever she's planning, uh, um, whatever Neki is planning, it will cause Shkak to die because she cannot breathe properly properly with the tentacles, whereas Anna would be seriously crippled. Um, the pain would be immense, and Tate asks him like, if the if the girls were unconscious, would it still hurt? But Akin tells that there is no matter what, even the girls are dead. The tentacles are on them are not, and if anyone tries to harm them, they could still kill them with the poisonous thing, the self, you know, response, uh, a response to like uh, harm. Mm. He didn't want to tell Tate this before because um, he didn't want to scare her, but Tate tells him that you know it's good sometimes to be scared. Uh, and she's going to tell people mm. about the uh, about it through a story about when Gabe and her were on um, ship and she saw a man injured one of uh, uh, injured one of the Onkali body tentacles. She tells Akin that his mother was there with them, but won't mention her beer when she tells the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting that the, you know, we get this uh, information that the the tentacles kind of have a, a little bit of a mind of their own here as well. Yep. It's kind of analogous to octopus tentacles, right? They they have their own sort of semi-autonomous nervous system. So even if even if the girls are dead and the tentacles are not quite, you know, uh, completely out of juice yet, they'll reflexively sting you if you try and, you know, yep. attack them. Uh, it's a, yeah, an interesting little detail. Um, I guess it's... And we get a... a sorry, I guess it's mm-hmm. also a fact that, you know, the, an uloi potentially could help to revive a body in, in case, like, there's still enough not mm. enough damage caused to it you potentially if it's not um it's like there's still chance for it to survive if there's no like pre- present right so you, it would make sense mm. to be still but i mean like um, even with you know normal um, earth animals as mm-hmm. it were <laughs> instead of aliens right i mean if like for a little while after their like circul- circulation stops there's still yes enough oxygen know, and reflexes nutrients. and yes, stuff yes. while there's yep. Well, there's you know still enough um, like ATP and stuff in their tissues to to do stuff. So I think it's kind of just in in that sort of space of you know there's still some you know residual um, chemical mm-hmm. energy sat there that can be triggered to to do reflexive action um, even after the uh, main body is is would yep. be judged as dead. And uh, the other interesting little thing in this, I think, is the return to the kind of uh, thematic point that we um, touched on in the last mm-hmm. chapter of like storytelling in yep, human yep. culture. Because you know, Tate is saying that she's going to tell this story about what happened when someone you know, damaged the body tentacle to try and discourage um, uh, Neki from from uh, attempting to yep. cut the tentacles of the girls and you know scare scare them off that um, that uh, course of action. Um, but yeah, it's kind of taking this sort of indirect approach 
to trying to dissuade her, right? Telling this kind of illustrative parable uh, of what happened um, in another circumstance and, you know, letting Neki generalize the lesson from, from that story to this one and sort of mm, a, mm. Um, this uh, almost like, uh, you know, kind of incept the idea, right? <laughs> don't, don't, uh, don't like hit them over the head with it, but uh, let them come to it on their own by yeah. providing them with some, uh, uh, some information to analogize to. Um, I guess, and sometimes it just makes like a if a person comes to a conclusion by themselves to the conclusion to themselves, then it leaves a longer impact on them and mm-hmm. preserves the memory longer. I would say. Yeah, this kind of um, like thinking and narratives thing that that uh, <clears throat> we are fairly good at as a species. Yep. <laughs> Continuing the story, Kakindan goes quiet uh, when he heard about his mother, and when Tate asks what's wrong. Tells her again that he uh, that she should have taken him back. Um, he tells her about Kak told him of the resistant villages that tie woman up. Um, Tate apologizes, but she can't take him back home because he means too much for her people. Akin tells her again that the Onkali won't allow them to keep him much longer. Even if Amma and Kak grew up with him in the village, they would still need a construct Uloi to have children. Even though he's a child and yet to understand what it means, but he knows that he needs a three-being family unit to properly reproduce. Mm-hmm. And you know he's kind of uh, like acutely aware of the fact that he's separated from his sister, who would be the other part mm-hmm. of that reproductive unit. Yeah, and I think we get another moment of kind of uh, like vulnerability and childlikeness from from Akeen in, in this scene, right? Because you know, it's more of this like juxtaposition of him kind of like breaking down and crying about the fact that he's. You know, separate from the mm-hmm. family, and that Tate is, you know, and the resistors are keeping him apart from them, but also st- still, you know, like very uh, intelligently uh, discussing and, and talking about the situation. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah, we can we we kind of um, maintain the impression that he's still very young because of all of the uh, uh, the still childlike things yep. that he does. After a brief pause, Tate tells him that they need to go back, but Akin prompts again if she will help him. She tells him no, because him and the girls mean hope for them. When Akin tells them that it is futile to think uh, that Tate warns him is not to say that to the humans. Tate tells him that she's aware that his, her people will co- sorry, his people will come for him, but until then, they need the, that hope. Um, in the final part of the conversation, Akin tells her of, about her lack of understanding what he's losing he's born with his sibling and he knows she doesn't care so why should he care about uh, how her people and it's that the fact that like that this delusion of like yeah we are aware that we got you're gonna be taken away but we still want you to have it like this illusion of mm-hmm. f- uh, children or family yeah yeah that's this kind of uh, I think we've discussed it before quite a lot about the the kind of um the like hypocrisy or the inconsistency of the the way that the humans mm-hmm. are kind of thinking about this this whole situation you know the, the, they want to keep the humans like the human line alive but they're trying to do so with with like hybrid construct children and you know they have this whole kind of mentality around the the resistors trying to maintain some kind of a, a hope for for doing otherwise but they're just sort of not like confronting the reality of the situation they have this this disconnect mm. uh, between yep. their kind of hopes and their actions, um, and there's an interesting little thing that uh, states uh, that Tate says about being um, kind of bad at, at self delusion, right? And and it seems that she is, you know, she's aware of this, right? She knows yep. that this whole project of the resistors is not going to work, um, but for some reason she's still kind of participating in 
this, but like she's not under any illusions that it will work. It's it's got a little. I'm, I have a little bit of difficulty kind of understanding some of her motivation because it seems like maybe I think it, it might just be because um, like she's not particularly interested in pursuing the the kind of um, like you know the whole kidnapping the children and trying yeah. to maintain the human line bit, but it's just more interested in in not engaging with the Owen Carly, and she doesn't really have kind of an alternative that sits. You know, a third alternative of like the kind of delusional resistors and the people who are um, you know, kind of capitulating and going along with the Oankali. Like there's not like a, a third group, right? There's not a, a straightforward way of just being not affiliated yeah. with either of those yeah. positions, right? Um, and yeah, so if she, if she wants to be in a, uh, somewhere where it's okay to live, like Phoenix and with Gabe and so on, then she has to kind of put up the front, even if she knows it mm-hmm. won't work. Yes. There's a there's an excellent section in in a book I read recently by uh, Julia Galef called the the Scout mm-hmm. Mindset and, and the third part of that book is um, titled uh, Thriving Without Illusions um, and it talks about the um, kind of more honest handling of of, of reality and, and mistakes uh, without relying on kind of this like model of uh, retroactive self justification and, and self deception or, or on uh, like blaming errors mm-hmm. on others um, for kind of the like benefits of emotional resilience right i mean if you can if you can take uh, the blame imagine that you didn't do something wrong then you can you know imagine that uh, you know you're fine as it were but uh, the, like for the most part it's actually useful to to have the the reality of that feedback um and there's a pretty good case to be made against a lot of the um kind of like uh positive mm-hmm. thinking uh positive illusions maintaining this kind of uh, attitude um because like it means that it's difficult to make progress right yeah. you can't identify areas where you've had you errors you don't really grow um, with that do you like if you don't take the um, responsibility of some of your actions or the the the, the, the illusions you create eventually like you basically create live in a world of illusions and nothing really you never move forward yeah yeah so you have to be kind of um like well anchored to to the reality of the situation so that you can you know uh, both be aware of when you have Erd and how you can improve um it's just the the kind of um you can effect there, like there are tools for effectively managing mm-hmm. being emotionally resilient to like like getting negative feedback from the environment and still maintaining you know a, a positive attitude yep. and so on but you just you don't need to be self-deceptive in order to a- attain those goals um so i think that's uh uh like uh, you know, if if we find ourselves in a situation like tate where we're having to uh um uh like try and pretend one thing although actually i suppose it's not really tate uh, um that's that's mostly guilty of this because she is aware of, of mm-hmm. what's going on but um kind of consciously choosing not to, to think about it to yeah. maintain this illusion but like the situation of the other resistors where they're kind of uh, trying to maintain this unrealistic image um and and like then as a result failing to update and act reasonably mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, in response to the reality that they're facing yeah yeah it's the fact that she still goes along with it, it shows that the, all those people are basically, um, I don't know, on the very last string of hope, I would say. A bit, I think, a mm-hmm. further push and they just all cl- crumble down like a um, house made of cards, like, basically. Mm-hmm. But yeah, let's finish off the chapter, I guess. Um, the mm-hmm. chapter ends with Tate saying she understands that he should hate them, but he's all they have. At that moment, Gabe comes in and asks what's going on and tells him that Tate tells him that they have work to do. And when Gabe asks what work, Tate says, and quote, we have to see to it that our girls aren't forced to kill anyone. 
that's how where the chapter ends <sighs> so yeah hmm. yeah there's a little bit before where um i think uh tate basically says that um she would uh, potentially just like uh, you know, give Neki a knife and invite her to try if the girls were a little bit older and more able to defend themselves. Yeah, uh, that... which uh, uh, and I think it's the same kind of. Uh, uh, that's almost what she's intending to do at this point, right? Now that Akin's kind of uh, said that you know trying to do this is probably not going to end well for someone who yes. tries to do this because the the, the ten, you know they'll defend themselves reflexively. Um, but yeah, it's a. Uh, uh, interesting that, like, um, I, I think Tate's kind of facing the, the reality of that situation, right? So I, I may not be able to dissuade her from doing this, but um, give the tools if, to uh, protect for the girls to protect themselves hmm. in a way. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. God, I just uh, some people. I. <laughs> yep. Anyway, I guess let's go to my chapter sixteen prediction. Um, so mm-hmm. I think that. Obviously, Neki is going to try, definitely trying to do something, and eventually, Aided Girls will try to escape, or they will escape them, because uh, we don't know whether, like, they'll um, the next few days, whether they will reach the salvage side or not. Um, but nonetheless, I feel like um, Tate will talk to people, and some people are like, "Yeah, actually, if we try to do something, it might be like the tentacles can like harm us." Um, but so mm. uh, she her plan will be postponed and then she'll try to do something the salvage side because we don't know whether there's some people the salvage side or not but definitely mm. um, the girls will want to escape that fate that's awaiting them if they're yeah. gonna stay longer mm-hmm. okay ah yes I had a question from, from earlier mm-hmm. I was gonna ask you do you think the Oan Kali are actually intentionally leaving Akeen with the humans uh, like and, and if so, like does does Lilith know about this, or are they actually struggling? So to find I them? am not certain because in one way we had Tino being left for death to uh, to death, right? So I suspect that if he survived this whole um, situation, he must be somewhere on the ship, uh, maybe mm-hmm. in that in those like um, those stasis chambers where he's being healed. Mm-hmm. In the same time, just before they left, Achjas gave birth. So I suspect maybe, maybe like um, in a way, uh, they are aware where Akin might be. There are some Onkali that were tracking them. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it was an opportunity, like the girl said, that for Akin to learn about the humans and mm-hmm. help the Onkali to understand that it's, there's necessity for humans to have this choice of having the third human Akjai version mm-hmm. of them. So I feel that at the moment, maybe they're not actively pursuing them, but there's like other Onkali that are on the looking for him, or at least they know where he is and they're just keeping distance because maybe this is, a, as long as, as the girl said, not, he's not harmed. He is, um, mm. he's learning about the humans. Okay. Yeah. So maybe the, like his immediate family are kind of busy with, um, you know, Tino's injury and uh, yes. giving birth and so on. So they're a little bit distracted by that. And the other Oankali that might be pursuing him are a bit more you know, disinterested personally and therefore holding back a little bit because they see yeah. it as an opportunity. Like often Oankali did when seeing an opportunity to something to learn something out of it. So it feels to me like that yeah. might be the possibility here. Okay. 
It makes sense though, mm -hmm. like because if you have like I mean they've been talking about human construct, human onkali construct that would be able to finally bridge the onkali and the humans, right? So if they come yeah, to the yeah. conclusion, or if their journey with the humans and they come to the conclusion that yeah, this is then maybe the onkali will finally listen because they're capable of you know. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing. Cause the the onkali sometimes seem quite risk averse, but other times they seem like quite willing to take substantial yeah. risks with, with the lives of some of the it's it's an interesting kind of mix uh but yeah it, it, it would seem a bit um harsh to just like you know dump this 18 year old 18 month old child in with a bunch of like fairly dangerous I humans honestly um because believe that like lilith right like as i as akin mm -hmm. said if there's no stopping lilith she would be like a tank walking through the planet <laughs> if she had to and uh, it not, there would be anything stopping her if there was uh, nothing else that was pulling her behind that you know that was more urgent although you know your child being stalling mm. is very urgent but something maybe mm. like Nikanj telling her that they have all everything under control and um, mm. it's a great opportunity for Akin to learn and there's still some things they have to you know take care of um, before they go and collect him yeah so the yeah uh... The Onkali are sort of playing interference with Lilith yeah. to stop her from <laughs> immediately I pulling him out. I think the only maybe, being but, to yeah, stop, yeah. Uh, be, being able to stop Lilith is Nikanj, right? Hmm, maybe, yeah. Because yeah, I, I honestly feel like she would fucking <laughs> run there and then wouldn't stop until she reaches the uh, village and then beat the hell out of crap of everyone. Like even the guns wouldn't stop her. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. I mean, she, she's usually very measured, though, right? That's. Uh, uh, the, one of the things that makes us so, so uh, um, kind of uh, uh, intimidating is that uh, she she knows when to wait. I mean, yes, but at the same time, I I would love to see going a little going on rampage. That would be such a especially on Gabe like going on his face, just like <laughs> yeah, that's certainly tempting. <laughs> I still to this day I still feel like Kaguya deserves a punch in the face, even it, it, although he is the father of uh, an Uloi parent of uh, Nikanj still deserves a punch in the face mm. for being an arrogant ass. Mm -hmm. Yep, and I, I, I definitely think Lilith felt <laughs> the same way. <laughs> I guess on this note, on this very positive note, we should finish yes. here. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. We were mm -hmm. Thesis. You can find every place we upload our podcast on, on our website, xenothesis.com. I was Michael Glinka. I was Richard Acton. Goodbye. Bye-bye.